Chapter forty eight of the Count of Monte Cristo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty eight Ideology. If the Count of Monte Cristo had been for a long time familiar with the ways of Parisian society, he would have appreciated better the significance of the step which Monsieur de Villefort had taken. Standing well at court, whether the king regnant was of the older or younger branch, whether the government was doctrinaire liberal or conservative, looked upon by all as a man of talent, since those who have never experienced a political check are generally so regarded, hated by many, but warmly supported by others, without being really liked by anybody. Monsieur de Villefort held a high position in the magistracy, and maintained his eminence like a harley or a mole. His drawing-room, under the regenerating influence of a young wife and a daughter by his first marriage, scarcely eighteen, was still one of the well-regulated Paris salons, where the worship of traditional customs and the observance of rigid etiquette were carefully maintained. A freezing politeness, a strict fidelity to government principles, a profound contempt for theories and theorists, a deep-seated hatred of ideality, these were the elements of private and public life displayed by Monsieur de Villefort. He was not only a magistrate, he was almost a diplomatist. His relations with the former court, of which he always spoke with dignity and respect, made him respected by the new one, and he knew so many things that not only was he always carefully considered, but sometimes consulted. Perhaps this would not have been so had it been possible to get rid of Monsieur de Villefort, but, like the feudal barons who rebelled against their sovereign, he dwelt in an impregnable fortress. This fortress was his post as king's attorney, all the advantages of which he exploited with marvellous skill, and which he would not have resigned but to be made deputy, and thus to replace neutrality by opposition. Ordinarily, Monsieur de Villefort made and returned very few visits. His wife visited for him, and this was the received thing in the world, where the weighty and multifarious occupations of the magistrate were accepted as an excuse for what was really only calculated pride, a manifestation of professed superiority. In fact, the application of the axiom, pretend to think well of yourself and the world will think well of you, an axiom a hundred times more useful in society nowadays than that of the Greeks, know thyself, a knowledge for which in our days we have substituted the less difficult and more advantageous science of knowing others. To his friends, <coughs> Monsieur de Villefort was a powerful protector to his enemies. He was a silent but bitter opponent. For those who were neither the one nor the other, he was a statue of the law-made man. He had a haughty bearing, a look either steady and impenetrable, or insolently piercing and inquisitorial. Four successive revolutions had built and cemented the pedestal upon which his fortune was based. Monsieur de Villefort had the reputation of being the least curious and the least wearisome man in France. He gave a ball every year, at which he appeared for a quarter of an hour only, that is to say, five and forty minutes less than the king is visible at his balls. He was never seen at the theatres, at concerts, or in any place of public resort. Occasionally, but seldom, he played at whist, and then care was taken to select partners worthy of him. Sometimes they were ambassadors, sometimes archbishops, or sometimes a prince or a president or some dowager duchess. 
such was the man whose carriage had just now stopped before the count of monte cristo's door the valet de chambre announced monsieur de villefort at the moment when the count leaning over a large table was tracing on a map the route from st petersburg to china the procureur entered with the same grave and measured step he would have employed in entering a court of justice he was the same man or rather the development of the same man whom we have heretofore seen as assistant attorney at marseilles nature according to her way had made no deviation in the path he had marked out for himself from being slender he had now become meagre once pale he was now yellow his deep-set eyes were hollow and the gold spectacles shielding his eyes seemed to be an integral portion of his face he dressed entirely in black with the exception of his white tie and his funeral appearance was only mitigated by the slight line of red ribbon which passed almost imperceptibly through his buttonhole and appeared like a streak of blood traced with a delicate brush although master of himself monte cristo scrutinized with irrepressible curiosity the magistrate whose salute he returned and who distrustful by habit and especially incredulous as to social prodigies was much more despised to look upon the noble stranger as monte cristo was already called as an adventurer in search of new fields or an escaped criminal rather than as a prince of the holy see or a sultan of the thousand and one knights sir said villefort in the squeaky tone assumed by magistrates in their oratorical periods and of which they cannot or will not divest themselves in society sir the signal service which you yesterday rendered to my wife and son has made it a duty for me to offer you my thanks i have come therefore to discharge this duty and to express to you my overwhelming gratitude and as he said this the eye severe of the magistrate had lost nothing of its habitual arrogance he spoke in a voice of the procureur-general with the rigid inflexibility of neck and shoulders which caused his flatterers to say as we have before observed that he was the living statue of the lord monsieur replied the count with a chilling air i am very happy to have been the means of preserving a son to his mother for they say that the sentiment of maternity is the most holy of all and the good fortune which occurred to me monsieur might have enabled you to dispense with a duty which in its discharge confers an undoubtedly great honour for i am aware that monsieur de villefort is not usually lavish of the favour which he now bestows on me a favour which however estimable is unequal to the satisfaction which i have in my own consciousness villefort astonished at this reply which he by no means expected started like a soldier who feels the blow levelled at him over the armour he wears and a curl of his disdainful lip indicated that from that moment he noted in the tablets of his brain that the count of monte cristo was by no means a highly bred gentleman he glanced around in order to seize on something on which the conversation might turn and seemed to fall easily on a topic he saw the map which monte cristo had been examining when he entered and said you seem geographically engaged sir it is a rich study for you who as i learn have seen as many lands as are delineated on this map yes sir replied the count i have sought to make of the human race 
taken in the mass that you practice every day on individuals a physiological study i have believed it was much easier to descend from the whole to a part than to ascend from a part to the whole it is an algebraic axiom which makes us proceed from a known to an unknown quantity and not from an unknown to a known but uh, sit down sir i beg of you monte cristo pointed to a chair which the procureur was obliged to take the trouble to move forwards himself while the count merely fell back into his own on which he had been kneeling when monsieur villefort entered thus the count was halfway turned towards his visitor having his back towards the window his elbow resting on the geographical chart which furnished the theme of conversation for the moment a conversation which assumed as in the case of the interviews with Danglars and morcerf a turn analogous to the persons if not to the situation ah you philosophize replied villefort after a moment's silence during which like a wrestler who encounters a powerful opponent he took breath well sir really if like you i had nothing else to do i should seek a more amusing occupation why in truth sir was monte cristo's reply man is but an ugly caterpillar for him who studies him through a solar microscope but you said i think that i had nothing else to do now really let me ask sir have you do you believe you have anything to do or to speak in plain terms do you really think that what you do deserves being called anything villefort's astonishment redoubled at this second thrust so forcibly made by his strange adversary it was a long time since the magistrate had heard a paradox so strong or rather to say the truth more exactly it was the first time he had ever heard of it the procureur exerted himself to reply sir he responded you are a stranger and i believe you say yourself that a portion of your life has been spent in oriental countries so you are not aware how human justice so expeditious in barbarous countries takes with us a prudent and well-studied course oh yes yes i do sir it is the pede claudo of the ancients i know all of that for it is with the justice of all countries especially that i have occupied myself it is with the criminal procedure of all nations that i have compared natural justice and i must say sir that it is the law of primitive nations that is the law of retaliation that i have most frequently found to be according to the law of god if this law were adopted sir said the procureur it would greatly simplify our legal codes and in that case the magistrates would not as you observed have much to do it may perhaps come to this in time observed monte cristo you know that human inventions march from the complex to the simple and simplicity is always perfection in the meanwhile continued the magistrate our codes are in full force with all their contradictory enactments derived from gallic customs roman laws and frank usages the knowledge of all which you will agree is not to be acquired without extended labor it needs tedious study to acquire this knowledge and when acquired a strong power of brain to retain it i agree with you entirely sir 
but all that even you know with respect to french code i know not only in reference to that code but as regards the codes of all nations the english turkish japanese hindu laws are as familiar to me as the french laws and thus i was right when i said to you that relatively you know that everything is relative sir that relatively to what i have done you have very little to do but that relatively to all i have learned you have yet a great deal to learn but with what motive have you learned all this inquired villefort in astonishment monte cristo smiled really sir he observed i see that in spite of the reputation which you have acquired as a superior man you look at everything from the material and vulgar view of society beginning with man and ending with man that is to say in the most restricted most narrow view which it is possible for human understanding to embrace pray sir explain yourself said villefort more and more astonished i really do not understand you perfectly i say sir that with the eyes fixed on the social organization of nations you see only the springs of the machine and lose sight of the sublime workman who makes them act i say that you do not recognize before you and around you any but those office holders whose commissions have been signed by a minister or king and that the men whom god has put above those office holders ministers and kings by giving them a mission to follow out instead of a post to fill i say that they escape your narrow limited field of observation it is thus that human weakness fails from its debilitated and imperfect organs tobias took the angel who restored him to light for an ordinary young man the nations took attila who was doomed to destroy them for a conqueror similar to other conquerors and it was necessary for both to reveal their missions that they might be known and acknowledged one was compelled to say i am the angel of the lord and the other i am the hammer of god in order that the divine essence in both might be revealed then said villefort more and more amazed and really supposing he was speaking to a mystic or a madman you consider yourself as one of those extraordinary beings whom you have mentioned and why not said monte cristo coldly your pardon sir replied villefort quite astounded but you will excuse me if when i presented myself to you i was unaware that i should meet with a person whose knowledge and understanding so far surpass the usual knowledge and understanding of men it is not usual with us corrupted wretches of civilization to find gentlemen like yourself possessors as you are of immense fortune at least so it is said and i beg you to observe that i do not inquire i merely repeat it is not usual i say for such privileged and wealthy beings to waste their time in speculations on the state of society in philosophical reveries intended at best to console those whom fate has disinherited from the goods of this world really sir retorted the count have you attained the eminent situation in which you are 
without having admitted or even without having met with exceptions and do you never use your eyes which must have acquired so much finesse and the certainty to divine at a glance the kind of man by whom you are confronted should not a magistrate be not merely the best administrator of the law but the most crafty expounder of the chicanery of his profession a steel probe to search hearts a touchstone to try the gold which in each soul is mingled with more or less of alloy sir said villefort upon my word you overcome me i really never heard a person speak as you do because you remain eternally encircled in a round of general conditions and have never dared to raise your wings into those upper spheres which god has peopled with invisible or exceptional beings and you allow then sir that spheres exist and that these marked and invisible beings mingle amongst us why should they not can you see the air you breathe and yet without which you could not for a moment exist then we do not see those beings to whom you allude yes we do you see them whenever god pleases to allow them to assume a material form you touch them come in contact with them speak to them and they reply to you ah said villefort smiling i confess i should like to be warned when one of these beings is in contact with me you have been served as you desire monsieur for you were warned just now and i now again warn you then you yourself are one of these marked beings yes monsieur i believe so for until now no man has found himself in a position similar to mine the dominions of kings are limited either by mountains or rivers or a change of manners or an alteration of language my kingdom is bounded only by the world for i am not an italian or a frenchman or a hindu or an american or a spaniard i am a cosmopolite no country can say it was my birth god alone knows what country will see me die i adopt all customs speak all languages you believe me to be a frenchman for i speak french with the same facility and purity as yourself well ali my nubian believes me to be an arab bertuccio my steward takes me for a roman haldi my slave thinks me a greek you may therefore comprehend that being of no country asking no protection from any government acknowledging no man as my brother not one of the scruples that arrest the powerful or the obstacles which paralyze the weak paralyzes or arrests me i have only two adversaries i will not say two conquerors for with perseverance i subdue even them they are time and distance there is a third and the most terrible that is my condition as a mortal being this alone can stop me in my onward career before i have attained the goal at which i aim for all the rest i have reduced to mathematical terms what men call the chances of fate namely ruin 
change circumstances i have fully anticipated and if any of these should overtake me yet it will not overwhelm me unless i die i shall always be what i am and therefore it is that i utter the things you have never heard even from the mouths of kings for kings have need and other persons have fear of you for who is there who does not say to himself in a society as incongruously organized as ours perhaps some day i shall have to do with the king's attorney but can you not say that sir the moment you became an inhabitant of france you are naturally subjected to the french law i know it sir replied monte cristo but when i visit a country i begin to study by all the means which are available the men from whom i may have anything to hope or to fear till i know them as well as perhaps better than they know themselves it follows from this that the king's attorney be he who he may be with whom i should have to deal would assuredly be more embarrassed than i should that is to say replied villefort with hesitation that human nature being weak every man according to your creed has committed faults faults or crimes responded monte cristo with a negligent air and that you alone amongst the men whom you do not recognize as your brothers for you have said so observed villefort in a tone that faltered somewhat you alone are perfect no not perfect was the count's reply only impenetrable that's all but let us leave off this strain sir if the tone of it is displeasing to you i am no more disturbed by your justice than are you by my second sight no no by no means said villefort who was afraid of seeming to abandon his ground no by your brilliant and almost sublime conversation you have elevated me above the ordinary level we no longer talk we rise to dissertation but you know how the theologians in their collegiate chairs and philosophers in their controversies occasionally say cruel truths let us suppose for the moment that we are theologizing in a social way or even philosophically and i will say to you rude as it may seem my brother you sacrifice greatly to pride you may be above others but above you there is god above us all sir was monte cristo's response in a tone with an emphasis so deep that villefort involuntarily shuddered i have my pride for men serpents always ready to threaten every one who would pass without crushing them underfoot but i lay aside that pride before god who has taken me from nothing to make me what i am then count i admire you said villefort who for the first time in this strange conversation used the aristocratic form to the unknown personage whom until now he had only called monsieur yes and i said to you if you are really strong really superior really pious or impenetrable 
which you are right in saying amounts to the same thing, then be proud, sir, for that is the characteristic of predominance. Yet you have unquestionably some ambition. I have, sir. And what may it be? I, too, as happens to every man once in his life, have been taken by Satan into the highest mountain in the earth, and where there he showed me all the kingdoms of the world, and as he said before, so said to he to me, Child of earth, what wouldst thou have to make thee adore me? I reflected long for a gnawing ambition, and long preyed upon me, and then I replied, Listen, I have always heard of Providence, and yet I have never seen him, or anything that resembles him, or which can make me believe that he exists. I wish to be Providence myself, for I feel that the most beautiful, noblest, most sublime thing in the world is to recompense and punish. Satan bowed his head and groaned. "'You mistake,' he said. "'Providence does exist, only you have never seen him, "'because the child of God is as invisible as the parent. "'You have seen nothing that resembles him, "'because he works by secret springs and moves by hidden ways. "'All I can do for you is to make you one of the agents of that providence.' "'The bargain was concluded. "'I may sacrifice my soul, but what matters it?' added Monte Cristo. If the thing were to do again, I would again do it. Villefort looked at Monte Cristo with extreme amazement. Count, he inquired, have you any relations? No, sir, I am alone in the world. So much the worse. Why? asked Monte Cristo. Because then you might witness a spectacle calculated to break down your pride. "'You say you fear nothing but death.' "'I did not say that I feared it. "'I only said that death alone could check the execution of my plans. "'And old age? "'My end will be achieved before I grow old. "'And madness? "'I have been nearly mad, and you know the axiom? "'Non bis in edem. "'It is an axiom of criminal law, and consequently you understand its full application. Sir, continued Villefort, there is something to fear besides death, old age and madness. For instance, there is apoplexy, that lightning stroke which strikes but does not destroy you, and yet which brings everything to an end. You are still yourself as now, and yet you are yourself no longer. You who, like Ariel, verge on the angelic, are but an inert mass, which, like Caliban, verges on the brutal, and this is called in human tongues, as I tell you, neither more nor less than apoplexy. Come, if so you will count and continue this conversation at my house, any day you may be willing to see an adversary capable of understanding and anxious to refute you. And I will show you my father, Monsieur Noirtier de Villefort, one of the most fiery Jacobins of the French Revolution. That is to say, he had the most remarkable audacity, seconded by a most 
powerful organization a man who has not perhaps like yourself seen all the kingdoms of the earth but who has helped to overturn one of the greatest in fact a man who believed himself like you one of the envoys not of god but of a supreme being not of providence but of fate well sir the rupture of a blood vessel on the lobe of the brain has destroyed all this not in a day not in an hour but in a second monsieur noirtier who on the previous night was the old jacobin the old senator the old carbonaro laughing at the guillotine the cannon and the dagger monsieur noirtier playing with the revolutions monsieur noirtier for whom france was a vast chessboard from which pawns rooks knights and queens were to disappear so that the king was checkmated monsieur noirtier the redoubtable was the next morning poor monsieur noirtier the helpless old man at the tender mercies of the weakest creature in the household that is his grandchild valentine a dumb and frozen carcass in fact living painlessly on that time may be given for his frame to decompose without his consciousness of its decay alas sir said monte cristo this spectacle is neither strange to my eye nor my thought i am something of a physician and have like my fellows sought more than once for the soul in living and in dead matter yet like providence it has remained invisible to my eyes although present to my heart a hundred writers since socrates seneca saint augustine and gaul have made in verse and prose the comparison you have made and yet i can well understand that a father's sufferings may affect great changes in the mind of a son i will call on you sir since you bid me contemplate for the advantage of my pride this terrible spectacle which must have been so great a source of sorrow to your family it would have been so unquestionably had not god given me so large a compensation in contrast with the old man who is dragging his way to the tomb are two children just entering into life valentine the daughter by my first wife mademoiselle rené de saint Maron, and edward the boy whose life you have this day saved and what is your deduction from this compensation sir inquired monte cristo my deduction is replied villefort that my father led away by his passions has committed some fault unknown to human justice but marked by the justice of god that god desirous in his mercy to punish but one person has visited his justice on him alone monte cristo with a smile on his lips uttered in the depths of his soul a groan which would have made villefort fly had he but heard it adieu sir said the magistrate who had risen from his seat i leave you bearing a remembrance of you a remembrance of esteem which i hope will not be disagreeable to you when you know me better for 
i am not a man to bore my friends as you will learn besides you have made an eternal friend of madame de villefort the count bowed and contented himself with seeing villefort to the door of his cabinet the procureur being escorted to his carriage by two footmen who on a signal from their master followed him with every mark of attention when he had gone monte cristo breathed a profound sigh and said enough of this poison let me now seek the antidote then sounding his bell he said to ali who entered i am going to madame's chamber have the carriage ready at one o'clock end of chapter forty eight chapter forty nine of the count of monte cristo by alexandre dumas this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter forty nine haiti it will be recollected that the new or rather old acquaintance of the count of monte cristo residing in the rue meslay were no other than maximilien julie and emmanuel the very anticipation of delight to be enjoyed in his forthcoming visits the bright pure gleam of heavenly happiness it diffused over the almost deadly warfare in which he had voluntarily engaged illumined his whole countenance with a look of ineffable joy and calmness as immediately after villefort's departure his thoughts flew back to the cheering prospect before him of tasting at least a brief respite from the fierce and stormy passions of his mind even Ali, who had hastened to obey the Count's summons, went forth from his master's presence in charmed amazement at the unusual animation and pleasure depicted on features ordinarily so stern and cold, while, as though dreading to put to flight the agreeable ideas hovering over his patron's meditations, whatever they were, the faithful Nubian walked on tiptoe towards the door, holding his breath, lest its faintest sound should dissipate his master's happy reverie. It was noon, and Monte Cristo had set apart one hour to be passed in the apartments of Haiti, as though his oppressed spirit could not all at once admit the feeling of pure and unmixed joy, but required a gradual succession of calm and gentle emotions to prepare his mind to receive full and perfect happiness, in the same manner as ordinary natures demand to be inured by degrees to the reception of strong or violent sensations. The young Greek, as we have already said, occupied apartments wholly unconnected with those of the Count. The rooms had been fitted up in strict accordance with Oriental ideas. The floors were covered with the richest carpets Turkey could produce. The walls hung with brocaded silk of the most magnificent designs and texture, while around each chamber luxurious divans were placed with piles of soft and yielding cushions, that needed only to be arranged at the pleasure or convenience of such as sought repose. Haidi and three French maids, and one who was a Greek, the first remained constantly in a small waiting-room, ready to obey the summons of a small golden bell, or to receive the orders of the Romaic slave who knew just enough French to be able to transmit her mistress's wishes to the three other waiting-women. The latter had received most peremptory instructions from Monte Cristo, 
to treat Haiti with all the deference they would observe to a queen. The young girl herself generally passed her time in the chamber at the farther end of her apartments. This was a sort of boudoir, circular, and lighted only from the roof, which consisted of rose-coloured glass. Haidi was reclining upon soft, downy cushions, covered with blue satin spotted with silver. Her head, supported by one of her exquisitely moulded arms, rested on the divan immediately behind her, while the other was employed in adjusting to her lips the coral tube of a rich narghile, through whose flexible pipe she drew the smoke fragrant by its passage through perfumed water. Her attitude, though perfectly natural for an Eastern woman, would, in a European, have been deemed too full of coquettish straining after effect. Her dress, which was that of the women of Epirus, consisted of a pair of white satin trousers, embroidered with pink roses, displaying feet so exquisitely formed and so delicately fair, that they might well have been taken from Parian marble, had not the eye been undeceived by their movements, as they constantly shifted in and out of a pair of little slippers with upturned toes, beautifully ornamented with gold and pearls. She wore a blue and white striped vest, with long open sleeves, trimmed with silver loops and buttons of pearls, and a sort of bodice which, closing only from the centre to the waist, exhibited the whole of the ivory throat and upper part of the bosom. It was fastened with three magnificent diamond clasps. The junction of the bodice and drawers was entirely concealed by one of the many-coloured scarfs, whose brilliant hues and rich silken fringe have rendered them so precious in the eyes of Parisian belle. Tilted on one side of her head, she had a small cap of gold-coloured silk, embroidered with pearls, while on the other a purple rose mingled its glowing colours with the luxuriant masses of her hair, of which the blackness was so intense that it was tinged with blue. The extreme beauty of the countenance that shone forth in loveliness that mocked the vain attempts of dress to augment it was peculiarly and purely Grecian. There were the large, dark, melting eyes, the finely formed nose, the coral lips and pearly teeth, that belonged to her race and country. And to complete the whole, Haidi was in the very springtide and fullness of youthful charms. She had not yet numbered more than twenty summers. Monte Cristo summoned the Greek attendant, and bade her inquire whether it would be agreeable to her mistress to receive his visit. Haidi's only reply was to direct her servant by a sign to withdraw the tapestried curtain that hung before the door of her boudoir, the framework of the opening thus made serving as a sort of border to the graceful tableau presented by the young girl's picturesque attitude and appearance. As Monte Cristo approached, she leaned upon the elbow of the arm that held the narghile, and extended to him her other hand, said, with a smile of captivating sweetness, in the sonorous language spoken by the women of Athens and Sparta, Why demand the permission ere you enter? Are you no longer my master, or have I ceased to be your slave? Monte Cristo returned her smile. Hedy, said he, you well know. Why do you address me so coldly, so distantly? asked the young Greek. Have I by any means displeased you? Oh, if so, punish me as you will, but do not 
do not speak to me in tones and manner so formal and constrained. Hey, replied the Count, you know that you are now in France, and are free. Free to do what? asked the young girl. Free to leave me. Leave you? Why should I leave you? That is not for me to say, but we are now about to mix in society, to visit and be visited. I don't wish to see anybody but you. And should you see one whom you could prefer? I would not be so unjust. I have never seen anyone I prefer to you, and I have never loved anyone but you and my father. My poor child, replied Monte Cristo, there is merely because your father and myself are the only men you have ever talked to. I don't want anybody else to talk to me. My father had said I was his joy. You style me your love, and both of you have called me my child. Do you remember your father, Hedy? The young Greek smiled. He is here and here, said she, touching her eyes and her heart. And where am I? inquired Monte Cristo laughingly. You cried she with tones of thrilling tenderness. You are everywhere. Monte Cristo took the delicate hand of the young girl in his, and was about to raise it to his lips when the simple child of nature hastily withdrew it and presented her cheek. You now understand, Hedy, said the Count, that from this moment you are absolutely free, that here you exercise unlimited away and are at liberty to lay aside or continue the costume of your country, as it may suit your inclination. Within this mansion you are absolute mistress of your actions, and may go abroad or remain in your apartments as may seem most agreeable to you. A carriage awaits your orders, and Ali and Mirtho will accompany you wheresoever you desire to go. There is but one favour I could entreat of you. Speak. Guard carefully the secret of your birth. Make no allusion to the past, nor upon any occasion be induced to pronounce the names of your illustrious father or ill-fated mother. I have already told you, my lord, that I shall see no one. It is possible, Hedy, that so perfect a seclusion, though conformable with the habits and customs of the East, may not be practicable in Paris. Endeavour, then, to accustom yourself to our manner of living in these northern climes, as you did to those of Rome, Florence, Milan, and Madrid. It may be useful to you one of these days, whether you remain here or return to the east. The young girl raised her tearful eyes towards Monte Cristo, as she said with touching earnestness, Whether we return to the east, you mean to say, my lord, do you not? My child, returned Monte Cristo, you know full well that whenever we part, it will be no fault or wish of mine. The tree forsakes not the flower. The flower falls from the tree. My lord, replied Hedy, I never will leave you, for I am sure I could not exist without you. My poor girl, in ten years I shall be old, and you will be still young. My father had a long white beard, but I loved him. He was sixty years old, 
but to me he was handsomer than all the fine youths I saw. Then tell me, Hedy, do you believe you shall be able to accustom yourself to our present mode of life? Shall I see you? Every day. Then what do you fear, my lord? You might find it dull. No, my lord. In the morning I shall rejoice in the prospect of your coming, and in the evening dwell with delight on the happiness I have enjoyed in your presence. Then, too, when alone, I can call forth mighty pictures of the past, see vast horizons bounded only by the towering mountains of Pindus and Olympus. Oh, believe me, that when three great passions, such as sorrow, love, and gratitude, fill the heart, ennui can find no place. You are a worthy daughter of Epirus, Hedy, and your charming and poetical ideas prove well your descent from that race of goddesses who claim your country as their birthplace. Depend on my care to see that your youth is not blighted or suffered to pass away in ungenial solitude, and of this be well assured, that if you love me as a father, I love you as a child. You are wrong, my lord. The love I have for you is very different from the love I had for my father. My father died, but I did not die. If you were to die, I should die too. The Count, with a smile of profound tenderness, extended his hand and she carried it to her lips. Monte Cristo, thus attuned to the interview he proposed to hold with Morel and his family, departed murmuring, as he went, these lines of Pindar. Youth is a flower of which love is the fruit. Happy is he who, after having watched its silent growth, is permitted to gather and call it his own. The carriage was prepared according to orders, and stepping lightly into it, the Count drove off at his usual rapid pace. End of chapter 49 Chapter 50 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 50 The Morel Family. In a very few minutes, the Count reached number seven in the Rue Meslay. The house was of white stone, and in a small court before it were two small beds full of beautiful flowers. In the concierge that opened the gate, the Count recognized Cocle, but as he had but one eye, and that eye had become somewhat dim in the course of nine years, Cocle did not recognize the Count. The carriages that drove up to the door were compelled to turn, to avoid a fountain that played in a basin of rockwork, an ornament that had excited the jealousy of the whole quarter, and had gained for the place the appellation of the little Versailles. It is needless to add that there were gold and silver fish in the basin. The house, with kitchens and cellars below, and above the ground floor two stories and attics, the whole of the property, consisting of an immense workshop, two pavilions at the bottom of the garden, and the garden itself, had been purchased by Emmanuel, who had seen at a glance that he could make of it a profitable speculation. 
he had received the house and half the garden and building a wall between the garden and the workshops had let them upon lease with the pavilions at the bottom of the garden so that for a trifling sum he was as well lodged and as perfectly shut out from observation as the inhabitants of the finest mansion in the faubourg saint germain the breakfast room was finished in oak the salon in mahogany and the furnishings were of blue velvet the bedroom was in citron wood and green damask there was a study for emmanuel who never studied and had a music room for julie who never played the whole of the second story was set apart for maximilian it was precisely similar to his sister's apartments except that for the breakfast parlor he had a billiard room where he received his friends he was superintending the grooming of the horse and smoking his cigar at the entrance of the garden when the count's carriage stopped at the gate Cochle opened the gate and baptistin springing from the box inquired whether monsieur and madame herbeau and monsieur maximilien morel would see his excellency the count of monte cristo the count of monte cristo cried morel throwing away his cigar and hastening to the carriage i should think we should see him ah a thousand thanks count for not having forgotten your promise and the young officer shook the count's hand as so warmly that monte cristo could not be mistaken as to the sincerity of his joy and he saw that he had been expected with impatience and was received with pleasure come come said maximilian i will serve as your guide such a man as you are ought not to be introduced by a servant my sister is in the garden plucking the dead roses my brother is reading his two papers the press and the debat within six steps of her for wherever you see madame herbeau you have only to look within a circle of four yards and you will find monsieur emmanuel and reciprocally as they say at a polytechnic school at the sound of their steps a young woman of twenty to five and twenty dressed in a silk morning gown and busily engaged in plucking the dead leaves of a noisette rose tree raised her head this was julie who had become as the clerk of the house of thompson and french had predicted madame emmanuel herbeau she uttered a cry of surprise at the sight of a stranger and maximilian began to laugh don't disturb yourself julie said he the count has only been two or three days in paris but he already knows what a fashionable woman of the marais is and if he does not you will show him ah oh, monsieur returned julie it is treason in my brother to bring you thus but he never has any regard for his poor sister penelon penelon an old man who was digging busily at one of the beds stuck his spade in the earth and approached cap in hand striving to conceal a quid of tobacco he had just thrust into his cheek a few locks of grey mingled with his hair which was still thick and matted while his bronzed features and determined glance well suited an old sailor who would brave the heat of the equator and the storms of the tropics i think you hailed me mademoiselle julie said he penelon had still preserved the habit of calling his master's daughter mademoiselle julie and had never been able to change the name to madame herbeau penelon replied julie 
go and inform Monsieur Emmanuel of this gentleman's visit, and Maximilian will conduct him to the salon. Then turning to Monte Cristo, I hope you will permit me to leave you for a few minutes, continued she, and without awaiting any reply, disappeared behind a clump of trees and escaped to the house by a lateral alley. I am very sorry to see, observed Monte Cristo to Morel, that I cause no small disturbance in your house. Look here, said Maximilian, laughing, there is her husband changing his jacket for a coat. I assure you, you are well known in the room, Meslet. Your family appears to be a very happy one, said the Count, as if speaking to himself. Oh, yes, I assure you, Count, they want nothing that can render them happy. They are young and cheerful. They are tenderly attached to each other, and with twenty-five thousand francs a year, they fancy themselves as rich as Rothschild. Five and twenty thousand francs is not a large sum, however, replied Monte Cristo, with a tone so sweet and gentle that it went to Maximilian's heart like the voice of a father. "'But they will not be content with that. "'Your brother-in-law is a barrister, a doctor. "'He was a merchant, monsieur, "'and had succeeded in the business of my poor father, Monsieur Morel, at his death. "'Left five hundred thousand francs, "'which were divided between my sister and myself, "'for we were his only children. "'Her husband, who, when he married her, "'had no other patrimony than his noble probity,' His first-rate ability and his spotless reputation wished to possess as much as his wife. He laboured and toiled until he had amassed 250,000 francs. Six years sufficed to achieve this object. Oh, I assure you, sir, it was a touching spectacle to see these young creatures destined by their talents for higher stations, toiling together and through their unwillingness to change any of the customs of their paternal house, taking six years to accomplish what less scrupulous people would have effected in two or three. Marseille resounded with their well-earned praises. At last, one day, Emmanuel came to his wife, who had just finished making up the accounts. Julie, said he to her, Cochle has just given me the last rouleau of a hundred francs. That completes the 250,000 francs we had fixed as the limits of our gains. Can you content yourself with the small fortune which we shall possess for the future? Listen to me. Our house transacts business to the amount of a million a year, from which we derive an income of 40,000 francs. We can dispose of the business, if we please, in an hour for I have received a letter from M. Delaunay in which he offers to purchase the goodwill of the house, to unite with his own for three hundred thousand francs. Advise me what I had better do. Emmanuel, returned my sister, the house of Morel can only be carried on by a Morel. Is it not worth three hundred thousand francs to save our father's name from the chances of evil fortune and failure? I thought so, replied Manuel, but I wished to have your advice. This is my counsel. Our accounts are made up and our bills paid. 
all we have to do is to stop the issue of any more and close our office this was done instantly it was three o'clock at a quarter past a merchant presented himself to insure two ships it was a clear profit of fifteen thousand francs monsieur said emmanuel have the goodness to address yourself to monsieur delaunay we have quitted business how long inquired the astonished merchant a quarter of an hour was the reply and this is the reason monsieur continued maximilian of my sister and brother-in-law having only twenty-five thousand francs a year maximilian had scarcely finished his story during which the count's heart had swelled within him when emmanuel entered wearing a hat and coat he saluted the count with the air of a man who is aware of the rank of his guest then after having led monte cristo around the little garden he returned to the house a large vase of japan porcelain filled with flowers that loaded the air with their perfume stood in the salon julie suitably dressed and her hair arranged she had accomplished this feat in less than ten minutes received the count on his entrance the songs of the birds were heard in an aviary hard by and the branches of the laburnums and rose acacias formed an exquisite framework to the blue velvet curtains everything in this charming retreat from the warble of the birds to the smile of the mistress breathed tranquillity and repose the count had felt the influence of this happiness from the moment he entered the house and he remained silent and pensive forgetting that he was expected to renew the conversation which had ceased after the first salutations had been exchanged the silence became almost painful when by a violent effort tearing himself from his pleasing reverie madame said he at length i pray you to excuse my emotion which must astonish you who are only accustomed to the happiness i meet here but contentment is so new a sight to me that i could never be weary of looking at yourself and your husband we are very happy monsieur replied julie but we have also known unhappiness and few have ever undergone more bitter sufferings than ourselves the count's features displayed an expression of the most intense curiosity oh all this is a family history as chateau renaud told you the other day observed maximilian this humble picture would have but little interest for you accustomed as you are to behold the pleasures and the misfortunes of the wealthy and industrious but such as we are we have experienced bitter sorrows and god has poured balm into your wounds as he does into those of all who are in affliction said monte cristo inquiringly yes count returned julie we may indeed say he has for he has done for us what he grants only to his chosen he sent us one of his angels the count's cheeks became scarlet and he coughed in order to have an excuse for putting his handkerchief to his mouth those born to wealth and to have the means of gratifying every wish said emmanuel know not what is the real happiness of life just as those who have been tossed on the stormy waters of the ocean on a few frail planks 
can alone realize the blessings of fair weather. Monte Cristo rose, and without making any answer, for the tremulousness of his voice would have betrayed his emotion, walked up and down the apartment with a slow step. "'Our magnificence makes you smile, Count,' said Maximilian, who had followed him with his eyes. "'No, no,' returned Monte Cristo, pale as death, pressing one hand on his heart to still his throbbings, while with the other he pointed to a crystal cover beneath which a silken purse lay on a black velvet cushion. "'I was wondering what could be the significance of this purse, with the paper at one end and the large diamond at the other.' "'Count,' replied Maximilian, with an air of gravity, "'those are our most precious family treasures. "'The stone seems very brilliant,' answered the Count. "'Oh, my brother does not allude to its value, "'although it has been estimated at one hundred thousand francs. "'He means that the articles contained in this purse "'are the relics of the angel I spoke of just now. "'This I do not comprehend, "'and yet I may not ask for an explanation, madam.' replied Monte Cristo, bowing. "'Pardon me. I had no intention of committing an indiscretion.' "'Indiscretion? Oh, you make us happy by giving us an excuse for expatiating on this subject. If we wanted to conceal the noble action that purse commemorates, we should not expose it thus to view. Oh, would we could relate it everywhere and to every one so that the emotion of our unknown benefactor might reveal his presence. "'Ah, really?' said Monte Cristo, in a half-stifled voice. "'Monsieur,' returned Maximilian, raising the glass cover and respectfully kissing the silken purse, "'this has touched the hand of a man who saved my father from suicide, us from ruin, and our name from shame and disgrace.' A man by whose matchless benevolence we poor children doomed to want and wretchedness can at present hear every one envying our happy lot. This letter, as he spoke, Maximilian drew a letter from the purse and gave it to the Count. This letter was written by him the day that my father had taken a desperate resolution, and this diamond was given by the generous unknown to my sister as her dowry. Monte Cristo opened the letter and read it with an indescribable feeling of delight. It was the letter written, as our readers know, to Julie, and signed Sinbad the Sailor. Unknown, you say, is the man who rendered you this service. Unknown to you. Yes, we have never had the happiness of pressing his hand, continued Maximilian. We have supplicated heaven in vain to grant us this favour, but the whole affair has had a mysterious meaning that we cannot comprehend. We have been guided by an invisible hand, a hand as powerful as that of an enchanter. Oh, cried Julie, I have not lost all hope of some day kissing that hand, as I now kiss the purse which he has touched. Four years ago, Penelon was at Trieste. Penelon, Count, is the old sailor you saw in the garden, and who, from quartermaster, has become gardener. Penelon, 
when he was at Trieste, saw on the quay an Englishman who was on the point of embarking on board a yacht, and he recognized him as the person who called on my father the 5th of June, 1829, and who wrote me this letter on the 5th of September. He felt convinced of his identity, but he did not venture to address him. "'An Englishman,' said Monte Cristo, who grew uneasy at the attention with which Julie looked at him. "'An Englishman, you say?' "'Yes,' replied Maximilian. "'An Englishman who represented himself as the confidential clerk of the house of Thompson and French at Rome. It was this that made me start when you said the other day at Monsieur de Morcerf's that Messrs. Thompson and French were your bankers. That happened as I told you in 1829. For God's sake, tell me, did you know this Englishman? But you tell me also that the house of Thompson and French have constantly denied having rendered you this service. Yes. Then it is not probable that this Englishman may be someone who, grateful for a kindness your father had shown him, and which he himself had forgotten, has taken this method of requiting the obligation. Everything is possible in this affair, even a miracle. What was his name? asked Monte Cristo. "'He gave no other name,' answered Julie, looking earnestly at the Count. "'Then that at the end of his letter, Sinbad the Sailor, which is evidently not his real name, but a fictitious one.' Then, noticing that Julie was struck with the sound of his voice, "'Tell me,' continued he, "'was he not about my height, perhaps a little taller?' with his chin imprisoned, as it were, in a high cravat, his coat closely buttoned up and constantly taking out his pencil. "'Oh, do you then know him?' cried Julie, whose eyes sparkled with joy. "'No,' returned Monte Cristo. "'I only guessed. I knew a Lord Wilmore, who was constantly doing actions of this kind.' "'Without revealing himself?' "'He was an eccentric being,' and did not believe in the existence of gratitude. "'Oh, heaven!' exclaimed Julie, clasping her hands. "'In what did he believe?' "'He did not credit it at the period which I knew him,' said Monte Cristo, touched to the heart by the accents of Julie's voice. "'But perhaps since then he has had proofs that gratitude does exist.' "'And do you know this gentleman, monsieur?' inquired Emmanuel. "'Oh, if you do know him,' cried Julie, "'can you tell us where he is, where we can find him? "'Maximilian, Emmanuel, if we do but discover him, "'he must believe in the gratitude of the heart.' Monte Cristo felt tears start into his eyes, "'and he again walked hastily up and down the room. "'In the name of heaven,' said Maximilian, "'if you know anything of him, tell us what it is.' "'Alas!' cried Monte Cristo, striving to repress his emotion. "'If Lord Wilmore was your unknown benefactor, "'I fear you will never see him again. "'I parted from him two years ago at Palermo, "'and he was then on the point of setting out "'for the most remote regions, "'so that I fear he will never return.' "'Oh, monsieur, 
this is cruel of you said julie much affected and the young lady's eyes swam with tears madame replied monte cristo gravely and gazing earnestly on the two liquid pearls that trickled down julie's cheeks had lord wilmore seen what i now see he would become attached to life for the tears you shed would reconcile him to mankind and he held out his hand to julie who gave him hers carried away by the look and accent of the count but continued she lord wilmore had a family or friends he must have known someone can we not oh it is useless to inquire returned the count perhaps after all he was not the man you seek for he was my friend he had no secrets from me and if this had been so he would have confided in me and he told you nothing not a word nothing that would lead you to suppose nothing and yet you speak of him at once ah in such a case one supposes sister sister said maximilian coming to the count's aid monsieur is quite right recollect that our excellent father has often told us it was no englishman that thus saved us monte cristo started what did your father tell you monsieur morel said he eagerly my father thought that this action had been miraculously performed he believed that a benefactor had arisen from the grave to save us oh it was a touching superstition monsieur and although i did not myself believe it i would not for the world have destroyed my father's faith how often did he muse over it and pronounce the name of a dear friend a friend lost to him forever and on his deathbed when the near approach of eternity seemed to have illumined his mind with supernatural light this thought which had until then been but a doubt became a conviction and his last words were maximilian it was edmond dante at these words the count's paleness which had for some time been increasing became alarming he could not speak he looked at his watch like a man who has forgotten the hour said a few hurried words to madame herbeau and pressing the hands of emmanuel and maximilian madame said he i trust you you will allow me to visit you occasionally i value your friendship and feel grateful to you for your welcome for this is the first time for many years that i have thus yielded to my feelings and he hastily quitted the apartment this count of monte cristo is a strange man said emmanuel yes answered maximilian but i feel sure he has an excellent heart and that he likes us his voice went to my heart observed julie and two or three times i fancied that i had heard it before End of chapter 50「
Pyramus and Thisbe. About two-thirds of the way, along the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, and in the rear of one of the most imposing mansions in this rich neighbourhood, where the various houses vie with each other for elegance of design and magnificence of construction, extended a large garden, where the wide-spreading chestnut trees raised their heads high above the walls in a solid rampart, and with the coming of every spring scattered a shower of delicate pink and white blossoms into the large stone vases that stood upon the two square pilasters of a curiously wrought iron gate that dated from the time of Louis Twelfth. This noble entrance, however, in spite of its striking appearance, and the graceful effect of the geraniums planted in the two vases, as they waved their variegated leaves in the wind, and charmed the eye with their scarlet bloom, had fallen into utter disuse. The proprietors of the mansion had many years before thought it best to confine themselves to the possession of the house itself, with its thickly planted courtyard opening into the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, and to the garden, shut in by this gate, which formerly communicated with a fine kitchen-garden of about an acre. For the demon of speculation drew a line, or in other words projected a street, at the farther side of the kitchen-garden. The street was laid out, a name was chosen, and posted up on an iron plate. But before construction was begun, it occurred to the possessor of the property that a handsome sum might be obtained for the ground then devoted to fruits and vegetables, by building along the line of the proposed street, and so making it a branch of communication with the Faubourg Saint-Honoré itself, one of the most important thoroughfares in the city of Paris. In matters of speculation, however, though man proposes, money disposes. From some such difficulty the newly named street died almost in birth, and the purchaser of the kitchen garden, having paid a high price for it and being quite unable to find any one willing to take his bargain off his hands without a considerable loss, yet still clinging to the belief that at some future day he should obtain a sum for it that would repay him, not only for his past outlay, but also the interest upon the capital locked up in his new acquisition, contented himself with letting the ground temporarily to some market gardeners at a yearly rental of five hundred francs. And so, as we have said, the iron gate leading into the kitchen garden had been closed up and left to rust, which bade fair before long to eat of its hinges, while to prevent the ignoble glances of the diggers and delvers of the ground from presuming to sully the aristocratic enclosure belonging to the mansion, the gate had been boarded up to a height of six feet. True, the planks were not so closely adjusted, but that a hasty peep might be obtained through their interstices, but the strict decorum and rigid propriety of the inhabitants of the house left no grounds for apprehending that advantage would be taken of that circumstance. Horticulture seemed, however, to have been abandoned in the deserted kitchen garden, and where cabbages, carrots, radishes, peas, and melons had once flourished, a scanty crop of lucerne alone bore evidence of its being deemed worthy of cultivation. A small low door gave egress from the walled space we have been describing into the projected street. The ground having been abandoned as unproductive by its various renters, and had now fallen so completely in general estimation as to return not even the one-half per cent it had originally paid. Toward the house, 
the chestnut trees we have before mentioned rose high above the wall without in any way affecting the growth of other luxuriant shrubs and flowers that eagerly dressed forward to fill up the vacant spaces as though asserting their right to enjoy the boon of light and air at one corner where the foliage became so thick as almost to shut out day a large stone bench and sundry rustic seats indicated that this sheltered spot was either in general favour or particular use by some inhabitant of the house which was faintly discernible through the dense mass of verdure that partially concealed it though situated but a hundred paces off whoever had selected this retired portion of the grounds as the boundary of a walk or as a place for meditation was abundantly justified in the choice by the absence of all glare the cool refreshing shade the screen it afforded from the scorching rays of the sun that found no entrance there even during the burning days of hottest summer the incessant and melodious warbling of birds and the entire removal from either the noise of the street or the bustle of the mansion on the evening of one of the warmest days spring had yet bestowed on the inhabitants of paris might be seen negligently thrown upon the stone bench a book a parasol and a work-basket from which hung a partly embroidered cambric handkerchief while at a little distance from these articles was a young woman standing close to the iron gate endeavouring to discern something on the other side by means of the openings in the planks the earnestness of her attitude and the fixed gaze with which she seemed to seek the object of her wishes proving how much her feelings were interested in the matter at that instant the little side gate leading from the waste ground to the street was noiselessly opened and a tall powerful young man appeared he was dressed in a common grey blouse and velvet cap but his carefully arranged hair beard and moustache all of the richest and glossiest black ill accorded with his plebeian attire after casting a rapid glance around him in order to assure himself that he was unobserved he entered by the small gate and carefully closing and securing it after him proceeded with a hurried step towards the barrier at the sight of him she expected though probably not in such a costume the young woman started in terror and was about to make a hasty retreat but the eye of love had already seen even through the narrow chinks of the wooden palisades the movement of the white robe and observed the fluttering of the blue sash pressing his lips close to the planks he exclaimed don't be alarmed valentine it is i again the timid girl found courage to return to the gate saying as she did so and why do you come so late to-day it is almost dinner-time and i had to use no little diplomacy to get rid of my watchful mother-in-law my too devoted maid and my troublesome brother who is always teasing me about coming to work at my embroidery which i am in a fair way never to get done so pray excuse yourself as well as you can for having made me wait and after that tell me why i see you in a dress so singular that at first i did not recognize you dearest valentine said the young man the difference between our respective stations makes me fear to offend you by speaking of my love but yet i cannot find myself in your presence without longing to pour forth my soul and tell you how fondly i adore you if it be but to carry away with me the recollection of such sweet moments i could even thank you for chiding me 
for it leaves me a gleam of hope that if you did not expect me and that indeed would be worse than vanity to suppose at least i was in your thoughts you asked me the cause of my being late and why i come disguised i will candidly explain the reason of both and i trust to your goodness to pardon me i have chosen a trade a trade oh maximilian how can you jest at a time when we have such deep cause for uneasiness heaven keep me from jesting with that which is far dearer to me than life itself but listen to me valentine and i will tell you all about it i became weary of ranging fields and scaling walls and seriously alarmed at the idea suggested by you that if caught hovering about here your father would very likely have me sent to prison as a thief that would compromise the honor of the french army to say nothing of the fact that the continual presence of a captain of spahis in a place where no warlike projects could be supposed to account for it might well create surprise so i have become a gardener and consequently adopted the costume of my calling what excessive nonsense you talk maximilian nonsense pray do not call what i consider the wisest action of my life by such a name consider by coming a gardener i effectually screen our meetings from all suspicion or danger i beseech you maximilian to cease trifling and tell me what you really mean simply that having ascertained that the piece of ground on which i stand was to let i made application for it was readily accepted by the proprietor and am now master of this fine crop of lucerne think of that valentine there is nothing now to prevent my building myself a little hut on my plantation and residing not twenty yards from you only imagine what happiness that would afford me i can scarcely contain myself at the bare idea such felicity seems above all price as a thing impossible and unattainable but would you believe that i purchase all this delight joy and happiness for which i would cheerfully have surrendered ten years of my life at the small cost of five hundred francs per annum paid quarterly henceforth we have nothing to fear i am on my own ground and have an undoubted right to place a ladder against the wall and to look over when i please without having any apprehensions of being taken off by the police as a suspicious character i may also enjoy the precious privilege of assuring you of my fond faithful and unalterable affection whenever you visit your favorite bower unless indeed it offends your pride to listen to professions of love from the lips of a poor workingman clad in a blouse and cap a faint cry of mingled pleasure and surprise escaped from the lips of valentine who almost instantly said in a saddened tone as though some envious cloud darkened the joy which illumined her heart alas no maximilian this must not be for many reasons we should presume too much on our own strength and like others perhaps be led astray by our blind confidence in each other's prudence how can you for an instant entertain so unworthy a thought dear valentine have i not from the first blessed hour of our acquaintance schooled all my words and actions to your sentiments and ideas and you have i am sure the fullest confidence in my honour 
when you spoke to me of experiencing a vague and indefinite sense of coming danger, I placed myself blindly and devotedly at your service, asking no other reward than the pleasure of being useful to you. And have I ever since, by word or look, given you cause of regret for that having selected me from the numbers that would willingly have sacrificed their lives for you? You told me, my dear Valentine, that you are engaged to Monsieur Depinay, and that your father was resolved upon completing the match, and that from his will there was no appeal, as Monsieur de Villefort was never known to change a determination once formed. I kept in the background, as you wished, and waited, not for the decision of your heart or my own, but hoping that Providence would graciously interpose in our behalf, and order events in our favour. But what cared I for delays or difficulties? Valentine, as long as you confess that you love me, and took pity on me, if you will only repeat that avowal now and then, I can endure anything. Ah, oh, Maximilian, that is the very thing that makes you so bold, and which renders me at once so happy and unhappy, that I frequently ask myself whether it is better for me to endure the harshness of my mother-in-law and her blind preference for her own child, or to be as I now am, insensible to any pleasure save such as I find in these meetings, so fraught with danger to both. I will not admit that word, returned the young man. It is at once cruel and unjust. Is it possible to find a more submissive slave than myself? You have permitted me to converse with you for time to time, Valentine, but forbidden my ever following you in your walks or elsewhere. Have I not obeyed? And since I found means to enter this enclosure, to exchange a few words with you through the gate, to be close to you without really seeing you, have I ever asked so much as to touch the hem of your gown, or try to pass this barrier which is but a trifle to one of my youth and strength? Never has a complaint or a murmur escaped me, I have been bound by my promises as rigidly as any knight of olden times. Come, come, dearest Valentine, confess that what I say is true, lest I be tempted to call you unjust. It is true, said Valentine, as she passed the end of her slender fingers through a small opening in the planks, and permitted Maximilian to press his lips to them. And you are a true and faithful friend. But still you acted from motives of self-interest, my dear Maximilian, for you well know that from the moment in which you had manifested an opposite spirit, all would have been ended between us. You promised to bestow on me the friendly affection of a brother, for I have no friend but yourself upon earth, who am neglected and forgotten by my father, harassed and persecuted by my mother-in-law, and left to the sole companionship of a paralysed and speechless old man, whose withered hand can no longer press mine, and who can speak to me with the eye of alone, although there still lingers in his heart the warmest tenderness for his poor grandchild. Oh, how bitter a fate is mine, to serve either as a victim or an enemy to all who are stronger than myself, while my only friend and supporter is a living corpse. Indeed, Indeed, Maximilian, 
I am very miserable, and if you love me it must be out of pity. Valentine, replied the young man, deeply affected, I will not say you are all I love in the world, for I dearly prize my sister and brother-in-law, but my affection for them is calm and tranquil, in no manner resembling what I feel for you. When I think of you my heart beats fast, the blood burns in my veins, and I can hardly breathe, but I solemnly promise you to restrain all this ardour, this fervour and intensity of feeling, until you yourself shall require me to render them available in serving or assisting you. Monsieur France is not expecting to return home for a year to come, I am told. In that time many favourable and unforeseen chances may befriend us. Let us, then, hope for the best. Hope is so sweet a comforter. Meanwhile, Valentine, while reproaching me with selfishness, think a little what you have been to me, the beautiful but cold resemblance of a marble Venus. What promise of future reward have you made me for all the submission and obedience I have evinced? None whatever. What granted me? Scarcely more. You tell me of Monsieur Franz Depinay, your betrothed lover, and you shrink from the idea of being his wife. But tell me, Valentine, is there no other sorrow in your heart? You see me devoted to you, body and soul. My life and each warm drop that circles around my heart are consecrated to your service. You know full well that my existence is bound up in yours, that were I to lose you, I would not outlive the hour of such crushing misery. Yet you speak with calmness of the prospect of your being the wife of another. Oh, Valentine, were I in your place, and did I feel conscious, as you do, of being worshipped and adored with such a love as mine, a hundred times at least should I have passed my hand between those iron bars, and said, Take this hand, dearest Maximilian, and believe that, living or dead, I am yours, yours only and forever. The poor girl made no reply, but her lover could plainly hear her sobs and tears. A rapid change took place in the young man's feelings. "'Dearest, dearest Valentine,' exclaimed he, "'forgive me if I have offended you, and forget the words I spoke, if you have unwittingly caused you pain.' "'No, Maximilian, I am not offended,' answered she. "'But do you not see what a poor, helpless being I am, "'almost a stranger, and an outcast in my father's house, "'where even he is seldom seen, "'whose will has been thwarted and spirits broken "'from the age of ten years beneath the iron rod "'so sternly held over me, oppressed, mortified, and persecuted.' Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. No person has cared for me, even observed my sufferings, nor have I ever breathed one word on the subject, save to yourself. Outwardly, and in the eyes of the world, I am surrounded by kindness and affection, but the reverse is the case. The general remark is, oh, it cannot be expected, that one of the so stern a character as Monsieur Villefort could lavish the tenderness some fathers do on their daughters. 
what though she has lost her own mother at a tender age she has had the happiness to find a second mother in madame de villefort the world however is mistaken my father abandons me from utter indifference while my mother-in-law detests me with a hatred so much the more terrible because it is veiled beneath a continual smile hate you sweet valentine exclaimed the young man how is it possible for anyone to do that alas replied the weeping girl i am obliged to own that my mother-in-law's aversion to me arises from a very natural source her overweening love for her own child my brother edward but why should it i do not know but though unwilling to introduce money matters into our present conversation i would just say this much that her extreme dislike to me has its origin there and i much fear she envies me the fortune i enjoy in right of my mother and which will be more than doubled at the death of monsieur and madame de saint Maron, whose sole heiress i am madame de villefort has nothing of her own and hates me for being so richly endowed alas how gladly would i exchange the half of this wealth for the happiness of at least sharing my father's love god knows i would prefer sacrificing the whole so that it would obtain me a happy and affectionate home poor valentine i seem to myself as though living a life of bondage yet at the same time i am so conscious of my own weakness that i fear to break the restraint on which i am held lest i fall utterly helpless then too my father is not a person whose orders may be infringed with impunity protected as he is by his high position and firmly established reputation for talent and unswerving integrity no one could oppose him he is all-powerful even with the king he would crush you at a word dear maximilian believe me when i assure you that if i do not attempt to resist my father's commands it is more on your account than my own but why valentine do you persist in anticipating the worst why picture so gloomy a future because i judge it from the past still consider that although i may not be strictly speaking what is termed an illustrious match for you i am for many reasons not altogether so much beneath your alliance the days when such distinctions were so nicely weighed and considered no longer exist in france and the first families of the monarchy have intermarried with those of the empire the aristocracy of the lance has allied itself with the nobility of the canon now i belong to this last named class and certainly my prospects of military preferment are most encouraging as well as certain my fortune though small is free and unfettered and the memory of my late father is respected in our country valentine as that of the most upright and honourable merchant of the city i say our country because you were born not far from marseilles don't speak of marseilles i beg of you maximilian that one word brings back my mother to my recollection my angel mother 
who died too soon for myself, and all who knew her, but who, after watching over her child during the brief period allotted to her in this world, now, I fondly hope, watches from her home in heaven. Oh, if my mother were still living, there would be nothing to fear, Maximilian, for I would tell her that I loved you, and she would protect us. I fear, Valentine, replied the lover, that were she living, I should never have had the happiness of knowing you. You would then have been too happy to have stooped from your grandeur to bestow a thought on me. "'Now it is you who are unjust, Maximilian,' cried Valentine. "'But there is one thing I wish to know.' "'And what is that?' inquired the young man, perceiving that Valentine hesitated. "'Tell me, truly, Maximilian, whether in former days, when our fathers dwelt at Marseilles, there was ever any misunderstanding between them.' "'Not that I am aware of,' replied the young man, "'unless indeed—' Any ill-feeling might have arisen from their being of opposite parties. Your father was, as you know, a zealous partisan of the Bourbon, while mine was wholly devoted to the Emperor. There could not possibly be any other difference between them. But why do you ask? I will tell you, replied the young girl, for it is but right you should know. Well, on the day when your appointment as an officer of the Legion of Honour was announced in the papers— we were all sitting with my grandfather, Monsieur Noirtier. Monsieur Danglars was there also. Uh, you re recollect Monsieur Danglars, do you not? Maximilian, the banker whose horses ran away with my mother-in-law and little brother, and very nearly killed them. While the rest of the company were discussing the approaching marriage of Mademoiselle Danglars, I was reading the paper to my grandfather. But when I came to the paragraph about you, Although I had done nothing else but read it over to myself all the morning, you know you had told me all about it the previous evening. I felt so happy, and yet so nervous, at the idea of speaking your name aloud, and before so many people, that I really think I should have passed it over, but for the fear that my doing so might create suspicions as to the cause of my silence. So I summoned up all my courage— and read it as firmly and as steadily as I could. Dear Valentine, Well, would you believe it? Directly my father caught the sound of your name, he turned round quite hastily, and like a poor silly thing, I was so persuaded that everyone must be as much affected as myself by the utterance of your name that I was not surprised to see my father start, and almost tremble, but I even thought, though that surely must have been a mistake, that Monsieur Danglars trembled too. Morel, Morel, cried my father, stop a bit. Then knitting his brows into a deep frown, he added, surely this cannot be one of the Morel family who lived at Marseilles and gave us so much trouble from the violent Bonapartism I mean, about the year 1815. Yes, replied Monsieur Danglars. I believe he is the son of the old shipowner. Indeed, answered Maximilian. And what did your father say then, Valentine? Oh, such a dreadful thing that I don't dare to tell you. Always tell me everything, 
said maximilian with a smile ah continued my father still frowning their idolized emperor treated these madmen as they deserved he called them food for powder which was precisely all they were good for and i am delighted to see that the present gouvernement have adopted this salutary principle with all its pristine vigour if algiers were good for nothing but to furnish the means of carrying so admirable an idea into practice it would be an acquisition well worthy of struggling to obtain though it certainly does cost france somewhat dear to assert her rights in that uncivilized country brutal politics i must confess said maximilian but don't attach any serious importance dear to what your father said my father was not a bit behind yours in that sort of talk why said he does not the emperor who has devised so many clever and efficient modes of improving the art of war organize a regiment of lawyers judges and legal practitioners sending them in the hottest fire the enemy could maintain and using them to save better men you see my dear that for picturesque expression and generosity of spirit there is not much to choose between the language of either party but what did monsieur danglars say to this outburst on the part of the procureur oh he laughed and in that singular manner so peculiar to himself half malicious half ferocious he almost immediately got up and took his leave then for the first time i observed the agitation of my grandfather and i must tell you maximilian that i am the only person capable of discerning emotion in his paralyzed frame and i suspected that the conversation that had been carried on in his presence for they always say and do what they like before the dear old man without the smallest regard for his feelings had made a strong impression on his mind for naturally enough it must have pained him to hear the emperor he so devotedly loved and served spoken of in that depreciating manner the name of monsieur noirtier interposed maximilian he is celebrated throughout europe he was a statesman of high standing and you may or may not know valentine that he took a leading part in every bonapartist conspiracy set on foot during the restoration of the bourbon oh i have often heard whispers of things that seem to me most strange the father a bonapartist the son a royalist what can have been that reason of so singular a difference in parties and politics but to resume my story i turned towards my grandfather as though to question him as to the cause of his emotion he looked expressively at the newspaper i had been reading what is the matter dear grandfather said i are you pleased he gave me a sign in the affirmative with what my father said just now he returned the sign in the negative perhaps you liked what monsieur danglars said another sign in the negative oh then you were glad to hear that monsieur morel i didn't dare to say maximilian had been made an officer of the legion of honor he signified assent only think of the poor old man's being so pleased to think that you who were a perfect stranger to him had been made an officer of the legion of honor perhaps it was a mere whim on his part for he is falling they say into second childhood but i love him for showing so much interest in you how singular murmured maximilian 
your father hates me while your grandfather on the contrary what strange feelings are aroused by politics hush cried valentine suddenly someone is coming maximilian leaped into one bound into his crop of lucerne which he began to pull up in the most ruthless way under the pretext of being occupied in weeding it mademoiselle mademoiselle exclaimed a voice from behind the trees madame is searching for you everywhere where there is a visitor in the drawing-room a visitor inquired valentine much agitated who is it some grand personage a prince i believe they said the count of monte cristo i will come directly cried valentine aloud the name of monte cristo sent an electric shock through the young man on the other side of the iron gate to whom valentine's i am coming was the customary signal of farewell now then said maximilian leaning on the handle of his spade i would give a good deal to know how it comes about that the count of monte cristo is acquainted with Monsieur de Villefort. End of chapter 51「52 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Chapter 52 Toxicology It was really the Count of Monte Cristo who had just arrived at Madame de Villefort's for the purpose of returning the procureur's visit and at his name as may be easily imagined the whole house was in confusion Madame de Villefort who was alone in her drawing-room when the count was announced desired that her son might be brought thither instantly to renew his thanks to the count and edward who heard this great personage talked of for two whole days made all possible haste to come to him not from obedience to his mother or out of any feeling of gratitude to the count but from sheer curiosity and that some chance remark might give him the opportunity for making one of the impertinent speeches which made his mother say oh that naughty child but i can't be severe with him he is really so bright after the usual civilities the count inquired after monsieur de villefort my husband dines with the chancellor replied the young lady he has just gone and i am sure he'll be exceedingly sorry not to have had the pleasure of seeing you before he went two visitors who were there when the count arrived having gazed at him with all their eyes retired after that reasonable delay which politeness admits and curiosity requires what is your sister valentine doing inquired madame de villefort of edward tell someone to bid her come here that i may have the honor of introducing her to the count you have a daughter then madame inquired the count very young i presume the daughter of monsieur de villefort by his first marriage replied the young wife a fine well-grown girl but melancholy interrupted master edward snatching the feathers out of the tail of a splendid paroquet that was screaming on its gilded perch in order to make a plume for his hat madame de villefort merely cried be still edward she then added this young madcap is however very nearly right and 
Milly re-echoes what he has heard me say with pain a hundred times. For Mademoiselle de Villefort is, in spite of all we can do to rouse her, of a melancholy disposition and taciturn habit, which frequently injure the effect of her beauty. But what detains her? Go, Edward, and see. Because they are looking for her where she is not to be found. And where are you looking for her? With Grandpa Noitier. And do you think she is not there? No, 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 she is not there, replied Edward, singing his words. And where is she then? If you know, why don't you tell? She is under the big chestnut tree, replied the spoiled brat, as he gave, in spite of his mother's commands, live flies to the parrot, which seemed keenly to relish such fare. Madame de Villefort stretched out her hand to ring, intending to direct her waiting-maid to the spot where she would find Valentine, when the young lady herself entered the apartment. She appeared much dejected, and any person who considered her attentively might have observed the traces of recent tears in her eyes. Valentine, whom we have in the rapid march of our narrative presented to our readers without formally introducing her, was a tall and graceful girl of nineteen, with bright chestnut hair, deep blue eyes, and that reposeful air of quiet distinction which characterized her mother. Her white and slender fingers, her pearly neck, her cheeks tinted with varying hues, reminded one of the lovely English women who have been so poetically compared in their manner to the gracefulness of a swan. She entered the apartment and seeing near her stepmother the stranger of whom she had already heard so much, saluted him without any girlish awkwardness, or even lowering her eyes, and with an elegance that redoubled the Count's attention. He rose to return the salutation. "'Mademoiselle de Villefort, my daughter-in-law,' said Madame de Villefort to Monte Cristo, leaning back on her sofa and motioning towards Valentine with her hand. "'And... "'Monsieur de Monte Cristo, King of China, Emperor of Cochin, China,' said the young imp, looking slyly towards his sister. Madame de Villefort at this really did turn pale, and was very nearly angry with this household plague who answered to the name of Edward. But the Count, on the contrary, smiled and appeared to look at the boy complacently, which caused the maternal heart to bound again with joy and enthusiasm. "'But, madame,' replied the Count, continuing the conversation, and looking by turns at Madame de Villefort and Valentine. "'Have I not already had the honour of meeting yourself and Mademoiselle before? I could not help thinking so just now. The idea came over my mind, and as Mademoiselle entered, the sight of her was an additional ray of light thrown on a confused remembrance. Excuse the remark.' "'I do not think it likely, sir. Mademoiselle de Villefort is not very fond of society, and we very seldom go out,' said the young lady. "'Then it was not in society that I met with Mademoiselle or yourself, madame, or this charming little merry boy. Besides, the Parisian world is entirely unknown to me, for as I believe I told you, I have been in Paris for very few days. No,' "'But perhaps you will permit me to call to mind—stay. 
the count placed his hand on his brow as if to collect his thoughts no uh, it was somewhere away from here it was i do not know but it appears that this recollection is connected with a lovely sky and some religious fete mademoiselle was holding flowers in her hand the interesting boy was chasing a beautiful peacock in a garden and you madame were under the trellis of some arbor pray come to my aid madame do not these circumstances appeal to your memory no indeed replied madame de villefort and yet it appears to me sir that if i had met you anywhere the recollection of you must have been imprinted on my memory perhaps the count saw us in italy said valentine timidly yes in italy it was in italy most probably replied monte cristo you have travelled then in italy mademoiselle yes madame and i were there two years ago the doctors anxious for my lungs uh, prescribed the air of naples we went by bologna perugia and rome ah yes true mademoiselle exclaimed monte cristo as if this simple explanation was sufficient to revive the recollection he sought it was at perugia on corpus christi day in the garden of the hotel de poste when chance brought us together you madame de villefort and her son i now remember having had the honour of meeting you i perfectly well remember perugia sir and the hotel de poste and the festival of which you speak said madame de villefort but in vain do i tax my memory of whose treachery i am ashamed for i really do not recall to mind that i ever had the pleasure of seeing you before it is strange but neither do i recollect meeting with you observed valentine raising her beautiful eyes to the count but i remember it perfectly interposed the darling edward i will assist your memory madame continued the count the day had been burning hot you were waiting for horses which were delayed in consequence of the festival mademoiselle was walking in the shade of the garden and your son disappeared in pursuit of the peacock and i caught it mamma don't you remember interposed edward and i pulled three such beautiful feathers out of his tail you madame remained under the arbor do you not remember that while you were seated on a stone bench and while as i told you mademoiselle de villefort and your young son were absent you conversed for a considerable time with somebody yes in truth yes answered the young lady turning very red i do remember conversing with a person wrapped in a long woolen mantle he was a medical man i think precisely so madame this man was myself for a fortnight i had been at the hotel during which period i had cured my valet de chambre of a fever and my landlord of the jaundice so that i really acquired a reputation as a skilful physician we discoursed a long time madame on different subjects of perugino of raffaele of manners customs of the famous aqua tofana of which they had told you i think you said that certain individuals in perugia had preserved the secret yes 
true replied madame de villefort somewhat uneasily i remember now i do not recollect now all the various subjects of which we discussed madame continued the count with perfect calmness but i perfectly remember that falling into the error which others have entertained respecting me you consulted me as to the health of mademoiselle de villefort yes really sir you were in fact a medical man said madame de villefort since you had cured the sick moliere or beaumarchais would reply to you madame that it was precisely because i was not that i had cured my patients for myself i am content to say to you that i have studied chemistry and the natural sciences somewhat deeply but still only as an amateur you understand at this moment the clock struck six it is six o'clock said madame de villefort evidently agitated valentine will you not go and see if your grandpapa will have his dinner valentine rose and saluting the count left the apartment without speaking oh madame said the count where valentine had left the room was it on my account that you sent mademoiselle de villefort away by no means replied the young lady quickly but this is the hour when we usually give monsieur noirtier the unwelcome meal that sustains his pitiful existence you are aware sir of the deplorable condition of my husband's father yes madame monsieur de villefort spoke of it to me a paralysis i think alas yes the poor old gentleman is entirely helpless the mind alone is still active in this human machine and that is faint and flickering like the light of a lamp about to expire but excuse me sir for talking of our domestic misfortunes i interrupted you at the moment when you were telling me that you were a skilful chemist no madame i did not say as much as that replied the count with a smile quite the contrary i have studied chemistry because having determined to live in eastern climates i have been desirous of following the example of king mithridates mithridates rex ponticus said the young scamp as he tore some beautiful portraits out of a splendid album the individual who took cream in his cup of poison every morning at breakfast edward you naughty boy exclaimed madame de villefort snatching the mutilated book from the urchin's grasp you are positively past bearing you really disturb the conversation go leave us and join your sister valentine in dear grandpapa noirtier's room the album said edward sulkily what do you mean the album i want the album how dare you tear out the drawings oh it amuses me go go at once i won't go unless you give me the album said the boy seating himself doggedly in an armchair according to his habit of never giving way take it then and pray disturb us no longer said madame de villefort giving the album to edward who then went towards the door led by his mother the count followed her with his eyes let us see if she shuts the door after him he muttered madame de villefort closed the door carefully after the child the count appearing not to notice her then casting a scrutinizing glance around the chamber 
the young wife returned to her chair, in which she seated herself. "'Allow me to observe, madame,' said the Count, with that kind tone he could assume so well. "'You are really very severe with that dear, clever child.' "'Oh, sometimes severity is quite necessary,' replied madame de Villefort, with all a mother's real firmness. "'It was his Cornelius Napos that Master Edward was repeating, when he referred to King Mithridates,' continued the Count. "'And you interrupted him in a quotation which proves that his tutor has by no means neglected him, for your son is really advanced for his years.' "'The fact is, Count,' answered the mother, agreeably flattered, "'he has great aptitude, and learns all that is set before him.' He has but one fault. He is somewhat wilful. But really, on referring for the moment to what he said, do you truly believe that Mithridates used these precautions, and that these precautions were efficacious? I think so, madame, because I myself have made use of them, that I might not be poisoned at Naples, at Palermo, and at Smyrna. That is to say, on three several occasions when but for these precautions i must have lost my life and your precautions were successful completely so yes i remember now you mentioning to me at perugia something of this sort indeed said the count with an air of surprise remarkably well counterfeited i really did not remember i inquired of you if poisons acted equally and with the same effect on men of the north as on men of the south. And you answered me that the cold and sluggish habits of the north did not present the same aptitude as the rich and energetic temperaments of the natives of the south. And that is the case, observed Monte Cristo. I have seen Russians devour, without being visibly inconvenienced, vegetable substances which would infallibly have killed a Neapolitan or an Arab. "'And you really believe the result would be still more sure with us than in the East, "'and in the midst of our fogs and rains, "'a man would habituate himself more easily than in a warm latitude "'to the progressive absorption of poison?' "'Certainly, it being at the same time perfectly understood "'that he should have been duly fortified against the poison "'to which he had not been accustomed.' "'Yes, I understand that.' and how would you habituate yourself for instance or rather how did you habituate yourself to it oh very easily suppose you knew beforehand the poison that would be made use of against you suppose the poison was for instance brucine brucine is extracted from the false aragostura is it not inquired madame de villefort precisely madame replied monte cristo but i perceive i have not much to teach you allow me to compliment you on your knowledge such learning is very rare among ladies oh i am aware of that said madame de villefort but i have a passion for the occult sciences which speak to the imagination like poetry and are reducible to figures like an algebraic equation but go on i beg of you what you say interests me to the greatest degree 
well replied monte cristo suppose then that this poison was brucine and you were to take a milligram the first day two milligrams the second day and so on well at the end of ten days you would have taken a centigram at the end of twenty days increasing another milligram you would have taken three hundred centigrams that is to say a dose which you would support without inconvenience and which would be very dangerous for any other person who had not taken the same precautions as yourself well then at the end of a month when drinking water from the same carafe you would kill the person who drank with you without your perceiving otherwise than from slight inconvenience that there was any poisonous substance mingled with this water do you know any other counter poisons i do not i have often read and read again the history of mithridates said madame de villefort in a tone of reflection and had always considered it a fable no madame contrary to most history it is true but what you tell me madame what you inquire of me is not the result of a chance query for two years ago you asked me the same questions and said then that for a very long time this history of mithridates had occupied your mind true sir the two favorite studies of my youth were botany and mineralogy and subsequently when i learned that the use of simples frequently explained the whole history of a people and the entire life of individuals in the east as flowers betoken and symbolize a love affair i have regretted that i was not a man that i might have been a flamel a fontana or a cabanis and the more madame said monte cristo as the orientals do not confine themselves as did mithridates to make a cuirass of his poisons but they also made them a dagger science becomes in their hands not only a defensive weapon but still more frequently an offensive one the one serves against all their physical sufferings the other against all their enemies with opium belladonna brucaea snakewood and the cherry laurel they put to sleep all who stand in their way there is not one of those women egyptian turkish or greek whom here you call good women who do not know how by means of chemistry to stupefy a doctor and in psychology to amaze a confessor really said madame de villefort whose eyes sparkled with strange fire at this conversation oh yes indeed madame continued monte cristo the secret dramas of the east begin with a love philtre and end with a death potion begin with paradise and end with hell there are as many elixirs of every kind as there are caprices and peculiarities in the physical and moral nature of humanity and i will say further the art of these chemists is capable with the utmost precision to accommodate and proportion the remedy and the bane to yearnings for love or desires for vengeance but sir remarked the young woman these eastern societies 
in the midst of which you have passed a portion of your existence, are as fantastic as the tales that come from their strange land. A man can easily be put out of the way there. Then it is indeed the Baghdad and Bassors of the Thousand and One Nights. The sultans and the viziers who rule over society there, and who constitute what in France we call the gouvernement, are really Haroun al-Rashids and Glafars, who not only pardon a poisoner, but even make him a prime minister, if his crime has been an ingenious one, and who under such circumstance have the whole story written in letters of gold to divert their hours of idleness and ennui. By no means, madame, the fanciful exists no longer in the East. There, disguised under other names, and concealed under other costumes, are police agents, magistrates, attorneys-general, and bailiffs. They hang, behead, and impale their criminals in the most agreeable possible manner. But some of these, like clever rogues, have contrived to escape human justice and succeed in their fraudulent enterprises by cunning stratagems. Amongst us a simpleton possessed by the demon of hate or cupidity, who has an enemy to destroy, or some near relation to dispose of, goes straight to the grocers or druggists, gives a false name, which leads more easily to his detection than his real one, and under the pretext that the rats prevent him from sleeping, purchases five or six grams of arsenic. If he is really a cunning fellow, he goes to five or six different druggists or grocers, and thereby becomes only five or six times more easily traced. Then when he has acquired his specific, he administers duly to his enemy, or near kinsman, a dose of arsenic, which would make a mammoth or mastodon burst, and which, without rhyme or reason, makes his victim utter groans which alarm the entire neighbourhood. Then arrive a crowd of policemen and constables. They fetch a doctor, who opens the dead body and collects from the entrails and stomach a quantity of arsenic in a spoon. Next day, a hundred newspapers relate the fact, with the names of the victim and the murderer. The same evening the grocer or grocers, druggists or druggists, come and say, "'It was I who sold the arsenic to the gentleman.' and rather than not recognize the guilty purchaser, they will recognize twenty. Then the foolish criminal is taken, imprisoned, interrogated, confronted, confounded, condemned, and cut off by hemp or steel, or if she be a woman of any consideration, they lock her up for life. This is the way in which you northerns understand chemistry, madame. Derues was, however, I must confess, more skilful. "'What would you have, sir?' said the lady, laughing. "'We do what we can. All the world is not the secret of the Medicis or the Borgias.' "'Now,' replied the Count, shrugging his shoulders, "'shall I tell you the cause of all these stupidities? "'It is because, at your theatres by what at least I could judge by reading the pieces they play, they see persons swallow the contents of a file, or suck the button of a ring and fall dead instantly. 
five minutes afterwards the curtain falls and the spectators depart they are ignorant of the consequences of the murder they see neither the police commissary with his badge of office nor the corporal with his four men and so the poor fools believe that the whole thing is as easy as lying but go a little way from france go either to aleppo or cairo or only to naples or roma and you will see people passing by you in the streets people erect smiling and fresh-coloured of whom asmodeus if you were holding on by the skirt of his mantle would say that man was poisoned three weeks ago he will be a dead man in a month then remarked madame de villefort they have again discovered the secret of the famous aquatofana that they said was lost at perugia ah but madame does mankind ever lose anything the arts change about and make a tour of the world things take a different name and the vulgar do not follow them that is all but there is always the same result poisons act particularly on some organ or another one on the stomach another on the brain another on the intestines well the poison brings on a cough the cough an inflammation of the lungs or some other complaint catalogued in the book of science which however by no means precludes it from being decidedly mortal and if it were not would be sure to become so thanks to the remedies applied by foolish doctors who are generally bad chemists and which will act in favour of or against the malady as you please and then there is a human being killed according to all the rules of art and skill and of whom justice learns nothing as was said by a terrible chemist of my acquaintance the worthy abbe adelmonte of taormina in sicily who has studied these national phenomena very profoundly it is quite frightful but deeply interesting said the young lady motionless with attention i thought i must confess that these tales were inventions of the middle ages yes no doubt but improved upon by ours what is the use of time rewards of merit medals crosses montheon prizes if they do not lead society towards one more complete perfection yet man will never be perfect until he learns to create and destroy he does know how to destroy and that is half the battle so added madame de villefort constantly returning to her object the poisons of the borgias the medicis the rennes the ruggieris and later probably that of baron de trenck whose story has been so misused by modern drama and romance were objects of art madame and nothing more replied the count do you suppose that the real savant addresses himself stupidly to the mere individual by no means science loves eccentricities leaps and bounds trials of strength fancies if i may be allowed so to term them thus for instance the excellent abbe adelmonte of whom i spoke just now made in this way some marvellous experiments really 
"'Yes, I will mention one to you. "'He had a remarkably fine garden, "'full of vegetables, flowers, and fruit. "'From amongst these vegetables he selected the most simple, "'a cabbage, for instance. "'For three days he watered this cabbage "'with a distillation of arsenic. "'On the third the cabbage began to droop and turn yellow. "'At that moment he cut it.' In the eyes of everybody it seemed fit for table and preserved its wholesome appearance. It was only poisoned to the Abbe Adelmonte. He then took the cabbage to the room where he had rabbits, for the Abbe Adelmonte had a collection of rabbits, cats, and guinea pigs, fully as fine as his collection of vegetables, flowers, and fruit. Well, the Abbe Adelmonte took a rabbit, and made it eat a leaf of the cabbage. The rabbit died. What magistrate would find, or even venture to insinuate anything against this? What procureur has ever ventured to draw up an accusation against Monsieur Majondi or Monsieur Fleurance in consequence of the rabbits, cats, and guinea-pigs they have killed? Not one. So, then, the rabbit dies, and justice takes no notice. This rabbit dead? The Abbe Adelmonte has its entrails taken out by his cook and thrown on the dunghill. On this dunghill is a hen, who, pecking these intestines, is in her turn taken ill and dies the next day. At the moment when she is struggling in the convulsions of death, a vulture is flying by. There are a good many vultures in Adelmonte's country. This bird darts on the dead fowl and carries it away to a rock, where it dines off its prey. Three days afterwards, this poor vulture, which has been very much indisposed since that dinner, suddenly feels very giddy while flying aloft in the clouds and falls heavily into a fish-pond. The pike, eels, and carp eat greedily always, as everybody knows. Well, they feast on the vulture. Now suppose that next day one of these eels, or pike, or carp, poisoned at the fourth remove, is served up at your table. Well, then, your guest will be poisoned at the fifth remove and die at the end of eight or ten days of pains in the intestines, sickness, or abscesses of the pyloris. The doctors open the body, and say with an air of profound learning, The subject has died of a tumour on the liver, or of typhoid fever. But, remarked Madame de Villefort, all these circumstances, which you link thus to one another, may be broken by the least accident. The vulture may not see the fowl, or may fall a hundred yards from the fish-pond. Ah, that is where the art comes in. To be a great chemist in the East, one must direct a chance, and this is to be achieved. Madame de Villefort was in deep thought, yet listened attentively. But, she exclaimed suddenly, arsenic is indelible, indestructible in whatsoever way it is absorbed it will be found again in the body of the victim from the moment when it was being taken 
and sufficient quantity to cause death precisely so cried monte cristo precisely so and this is what i say to my worthy adelmonte he reflected smiled and replied to me by a sicilian proverb which i believe is also a french proverb my son the world was not made in a day but in seven return on sunday on the sunday following i did return to him instead of having watered this cabbage with arsenic he had watered it this time with a solution of salts having their basis in strychnine strychnos colubrina as the learned term it now the cabbage had not the slightest appearance of disease in the world and the rabbit had not the smallest distrust yet five minutes afterwards the rabbit was dead the fowl pecked at the rabbit and the next day was a dead hen this time we were the vultures so we opened the bird and this time all special symptoms had disappeared there were only general symptoms there was no peculiar indication in any organ an excitement of the nervous system that was it a case of cerebral congestion nothing more the fowl had not been poisoned she had died of apoplexy apoplexy is a rare disease among fowls i believe but very common among men madame de villefort appeared more and more thoughtful it is very fortunate she observed that such substance could only be prepared by chemists otherwise all the world would be poisoning each other by chemists and persons who have a taste for chemistry said monte cristo carelessly and then said madame de villefort endeavouring by a struggle and with effort to get away from her thoughts however skilfully it is prepared crime is always crime and if it avoids human scrutiny it does not escape the eye of god the orientals are stronger than we are in the case of conscience and very prudently have no hell that is the point really madame this is a scruple which naturally must occur to a pure mind like yours but which would easily yield before sound reasoning the bad side of human thought will always be defined by the paradox of jean-jacques rousseau you remember the mandarin who is killed five hundred leagues off by raising the tip of the finger man's whole life passes in doing these things and his intellect is exhausted by reflecting on them you will find very few persons who will go and brutally thrust a knife in the heart of a fellow creature or will administer to him in order to remove him from the surface of the globe on which we move with life and animation that quantity of arsenic of which we just now talked such a thing is really out of rule eccentric or stupid to attain such a point the blood must be heated to thirty-six degrees the pulse be at least at ninety and the feelings excited beyond the ordinary limit but suppose one pass as it permissible in philology from the word itself to its softened synonym then instead of committing an ignoble assassination you make an elimination 
you merely and simply remove from your path the individual who is in your way, and that without shock or violence, without the display of the sufferings, which in the case of becoming a punishment make a martyr of the victim, and a butcher in every sense of the word of him who inflicts them. Then there will be no blood, no groans, no convulsions, and above all, no consciousness of that horrid and compromising moment of accomplishing the act. Then one escapes the clutch of the human law, which says, Do not disturb society. This is the mode in which they manage these things, and succeed in eastern climes, where there are grave and phlegmatic persons who care very little for the questions of time in conjunctures of importance. "'Yet conscience remains,' remarked Madame de Villefort in an agitated voice, and with a stifled sigh. "'Yes,' answered Monte Cristo. "'Happily, yes, conscience does remain. "'And if it did not, how wretched we should be. "'After every action requiring exertion, "'it is conscience that saves us, "'for it supplies us with a thousand good excuses,' of which we alone are judges, and these reasons, howsoever excellent in producing sleep, would avail us but very little before a tribunal, when we were tried for our lives. Thus Richard III, for instance, was marvellously served by his conscience after the putting away of the two children of Edward IV. In fact, he could say, "'These two children of a cruel and persecuting king,' who have inherited the vices of their father, which I alone could perceive in their juvenile propensities. These two children are impediments in my way of promoting the happiness of the English people, whose unhappiness they, the children, would infallibly have caused. Thus was Lady Macbeth served by her conscience, when she sought to give her son, and not her husband, whatever Shakespeare may say, a throne. Ah, maternal love is a great virtue, a powerful motive, so powerful that it excuses a multitude of things, even if, after Duncan's death, Lady Macbeth had been at all pricked by her conscience. Madame de Villefort listened with avidity to these appalling maxims and horrible paradoxes, delivered by the Count with that ironical simplicity which was peculiar to him. After a moment's silence, the lady inquired, "'Do you know, my dear Count,' she said, "'that you are a very terrible reasoner, and that you look at the world through a somewhat distempered medium? Have you really measured the world by scrutinies, or through—' alembics and crucibles for you must indeed be a great chemist and the elixir you administered to my son which recalled him to life almost instantaneously oh do not place any reliance on that madame one drop of that elixir suffered to recall life to a dying child but three drops would have impelled the blood into his lungs in such a way as to have produced most violent palpitations, 
six would have suspended his respiration and caused syncopia more so serious than that in which he was ten would have destroyed him you know madam how suddenly i snatched him from those files which he so imprudently touched is it then so terrible a poison oh no in the first place let us agree that the word poison does not exist because in medicine use is made of the most violent poisons which become according as they are employed most salutary remedies what then is it a skilful preparation of my friends the worthy abbe adelmonte who taught me the use of it oh observed madame de villefort it must be an admirable antispasmodic perfect madame as you have seen replied the count and i frequently make use of it with all possible prudence though be it observed he added with a smile of intelligence most assuredly responded madame de villefort in the same tone as for me so nervous and so subject to fainting fits i would require a doctor adelmonte to invent for me some means of breathing freely and tranquillizing my mind in the fear i have of dying some fine day of suffocation in the meanwhile as the thing is difficult to find in france and your abbe is not probably disposed to make a journey to paris on my account i must continue to use monsieur planche's antispasmodics and mint and hoffman's drops are among my favorite remedies here are some lozenges which i have made up on purpose they are compounded doubly strong monte cristo opened the tortoise-shell box which the lady presented to him and inhaled the odor of the lozenges with the air of an amateur who thoroughly appreciated their composition they are indeed exquisite he said but as they are necessarily submitted to the process of deglutition a function which is frequently impossible for a fainting person to accomplish i prefer my own specific undoubtedly and so should i prefer it after the effects i have seen produced but of course it is a secret and i am not so indiscreet as to ask it of you but i said monte cristo rising as he spoke i am gallant enough to offer it to you how kind you are only remember one thing a small dose is a remedy a large one is a poison one drop will restore life as you have seen five or six will inevitably kill and in a way the more terrible inasmuch as poured into a glass of wine it would not in the slightest degree affect its flavor but i say no more madame it is really as if i were prescribing for you the clock struck half-past six and the lady was announced a friend of madame de villefort who came to dine with her if i had the honor of seeing you for the third or fourth time count instead of only for the second said madame de villefort if i had had the honor of being your friend instead of only having the happiness of being under an obligation to you i should insist on detaining you to dinner and not allow myself to be daunted by a first refusal a thousand thanks madame replied monte cristo but i have an engagement which i cannot break 
i have promised to escort to the academie a greek princess of my acquaintance who has never seen your grand opera and who relies on me to conduct her thither adieu then sir and do not forget the prescription ah in truth madame to do that i must forget the hour's conversation i have had with you which is indeed impossible monte cristo bowed and left the house madame de villefort remained immersed in thought he is a very strange man she said and in my opinion is himself the adelmonte he talks about as to monte cristo the result had surpassed his utmost expectations good said he as he went away this is a fruitful soil and i feel certain that the seed sown will not be cast on barren ground next morning faithful to his promise he sent the prescription requested end of chapter fifty two